0: Welcome to the Living Ageless and Bold podcast. I'm your host, Christina Daves, and in each episode, I bring you amazing women who inspire, educate, and share their experiences and journeys along the way. So grab a glass of wine or a cup of coffee, find a cozy spot, and let's relax and have some fun hearing what can be accomplished after 55. 55. so super excited. I have a new friend in Sherry Walling. We met recently through some networking things that we do, and she's really amazing. I think a really important guest for our demographic. Not everybody is 55 or over. Sherry is a clinical psychologist. She is a mental health advocate. She is a speaker. She is an author. This is her book. For those of you watching, you can see it is called Touching Two Worlds, A Guide for Finding Hope in the Landscape of Loss and i asked her to come on because unfortunately i've been gifting her book quite a bit lately cuz i feel like women our age are going through losing our parents and then i've had two friends who lost their spouses and i struggle with grief and how what you say and what you do so sherry i'm so glad you're here to help us get through all of this welcome
1: Thank you for having me. It's a difficult but important conversation, so I'm happy to jump in with you.
0: Yeah, and let's talk about your book and why you wrote the book and like I said, I've gifted it to people just because it's it's important and it's helpful.
1: Well, thank you for doing that. I come to this work, I guess first as a professional, you know, my background as a clinical psychologist is largely in the area of trauma and trauma includes a lot of grief. So I was Thinking about grief, I was working with people in the context of their own grief for many years, and then I had, I guess, sort of the unfortunate opportunity to become a deeper expert in grief by walking through pretty significant loss myself. So in a 6-month period I lost my dad to cancer and my brother to suicide. And then about a year later, I don't write about this much in the book, but this is sort of part of my story as well. We lost a little girl who was in our family for 4 years who returned to live with her birth family. So I kind of had these different kinds of grief that happened in my life in a short period of time and Thankfully, I was drawn to write about it. It was kind of began as my journal process, really, but became something that I decided I wanted to share with others in the hopes that it would help people feel less alone in these dark places.
0: And I think that's the key. I think we do feel alone when that happens. So, you know, let's talk about what's in the book. What, you know, what do you recommend? And I find it, and I'm going kind of all over the place, but because there's so much I want to talk to you about. But I find as we lose our parents, it's a little more of, it's the cycle of life. And, you know, as we have babies, we're excited and it's sad, but hopefully they've lived, you know, good, long lives. But when it happens at our age and it's, you know, friends and spouses and partners, it's a different kind of grief. And again, I don't know what to say to people i don't know how to deal with it myself so i'd love to hear you know what you recommend
1: i mean i think it is helpful to identify that grief is really different and even different categories of grief feel different to different people so my when i lost my dad was 65 so that's a young loss and it felt like a little bit of a, a jump in the developmental trajectory of a human life like it was too soon But I also there, you're right, there is this sort of framework that we have for losing our parents. It doesn't feel quite the same as maybe losing a sibling or losing a child, at least for some people. So I think creating space within our categorization of grief to realize that it's going to land very differently to different individuals and to not make assumptions about how people are feeling based on, oh, maybe their parent was elderly or maybe their parent had been ill. Like, it can still be incredibly world-rocking for someone. So I think that one of the best sort of frameworks for being with other people who are in grief is to really maintain a compassionate curiosity, right? To be warm and really help to communicate that the person that you care about is not alone but then also hold this curiosity because you don't really know what they're going through. You don't know what it feels like inside them. And so those curious questions of like, you know, tell me how you're carrying this. What's this day like for you in this grief process? What's What kinds of memories are important to you right now as you think back on the life that you shared with your parents or with your partner? So I think... This is a time of really skillful question asking. And if that feels beyond your skill, not something that you're good at or that feels like it comes naturally to you, it can be a time of presence where you show up with food, you show up with flowers, you show up with yard work, you come over and you pull weeds and just the sort of acts of service kind of love can be really helpful in grief. And I'm glad you said that. I I had a, a girlfriend who had just a
0: horrible tragedy you see on the national news kind of thing and she had lost her sister and her niece and her nephew and there was I mean there's nothing you, I, there was nothing you could do and it was her sister who had taken the lives of the kids and herself. and I literally showed up with a box of tissues and food and we just literally sat on the couch and cried because what can you possibly say? And to this day she so appreciates that. Because I really didn't know what else to do.
1: People ask, how are you doing? And that's a fine question, but it's probably not the best question. So presence, like you're demonstrating, I'm showing up with food, with tissues, or even an invitation to go on a walk. I think in the early aftermath of grief, people are so disrupted and disoriented that it can be helpful just to get re-anchored into your body. Like... Let's go for a walk for a few minutes. Would that feel good to you? Can be a really, I think, compassionate show of presence.
0: And I found, like you, I lost my dad very young. He was 51 and had a short battle with cancer. And then I lost my uncle very suddenly at 57. And it's different kinds of grief because when you have terminal a terminal illness, you, you never prepare but you have some time to say the things you want to say and spend some quality time together. And when it's sudden, it's, you know, it's like your heart's ripped out of you.
1: Yeah. I think the grief timeline is a little different when there's a chronic illness. My, we had 18 months with my dad from the time that he was diagnosed to the time that he died and that's both long and short, right? You're sort of outside of linear time in that case. But we did have the time to prepare and to be present, both myself, my mom, and my brothers. We're all with my dad when he died. And that experience was very precious and really sacred, and I think very important, certainly in my grieving experience. But when there's a sudden loss, it's not necessarily that the grief is more, but it just, it sort of hits you in the gut and it feels very different in your body. And it feels very different in your brain as you're trying to process what felt like an impossibility in a very short amount of time.
0: So what can we do when it happens to us? You know, there, I know, There are support groups and there's, but that's not for everybody. I know when my aunt lost my uncle, she didn't want to do that. What actually saved her, that she tells us now 20 years later, is she literally moved into my home and my kids were babies. And she was basically our nanny. She lived there and she said, You know, your kids saved my life, like having those small children around.
1: But for us, when it happens, what do you recommend? I think one of the most important things as an individual is to reorient to your own aliveness. So this image of your aunt holding babies, right, is like really connecting back to her aliveness. A part of my story with grief is I've channeled some of my energy into becoming an amateur circus artist, which is a kind of a bizarre strategy, but it still really anchors me to my body, to my aliveness, to my muscles, to my movement. So that's one thing is just finding your way back to the things and the moments that help you to connect to the fact that you are alive. And then I think the other thing that is important to mention, and also as part of your story with your aunt, is that I think this kind of journey is better in the presence of others. And it's hard because like we've identified, not everybody's going to understand it what it feels like inside of you, but grieving alongside other people that can be in a support group. It can be with a therapist. It can just be with your family members or other people that knew the one that passed away. But I think it's one thing that's so painful about losing someone that you love is that there are fewer opportunities to say their name or to tell stories about them or to help them to be alive in a dinnertime conversation. So when you grieve in the presence of others, you have the opportunity to speak the name aloud of the person that you love and to engage in storytelling and to sort of have them be more present with you. I love that. We just went, we just got back from a European
0: trip and we went to see, I call him my uncle. It was my dad's childhood best friend who actually walked me down the aisle when I got married and he just turned 80. And we spent a lot of time talking about my dad, which was really fun from from his perspective, because obviously I knew my dad is my dad, he knew my dad as his buddy and just some really fun, funny, it just really brought him to life. And it's been a long time since he passed away. So I love that you say that and it doesn't have to be immediate. It, it can be 30 years later, just to remember stories. So we're talking about losing people that we love, but there's other kinds of loss. And I know a lot of my girlfriends were all going through empty nests.
1: I'm right behind you. My son's graduating in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and it's as exciting as it is. You
0: know, you've raised these great humans. I tell this story all the time as they were growing up. I'm like, you're going to graduate from college. You're going to get a job. You're going to move out right away. You know, I, we didn't want bums on the couch in the basement, but then it happens. And I'm like, oh no, you can stay. Don't you want to live with us for a year? That we were lucky in that my son graduated in covid and had a job in New York City, which, you know, was shut down. So we got an extra eight months with him, which, you know, never, I mean, certainly wouldn't wish a pandemic to have that. But it's, you know, what do you recommend? It's hard. It's when you've raised kids for 18, you know, you've had someone in your house for 18 to 20 years, and then it's literally you're ripping the Band-Aid off. They're out in their own place
1: with a job. And hopefully <laughs> all goes well, but it's hard. Oh, I... Absolutely empathize, literally, because I'm in the middle of it. But I, I do think it's a thing that we should speak more about, and I'm glad you raise it because it is—it's a natural grief process that we don't always categorize as grief. You know, we, we sort of say, "Oh, you did your job. It's what you're supposed to do. It's where they're supposed to go." But it certainly is a huge loss in the way that we spend our hours, what we're thinking about, the space in our home, and so. Normalizing that we can have grief alongside something that's really positive, I think, is a more nuanced conversation that I feel is important. So, I think we have lovely rituals around this process. We've got graduation, we've got parties. Usually, there's a sort of sending off if someone's going to college or military or whatever is next for them. So, leaning into those rituals and understanding them not as just the gown and the party, but as a process of preparation for everyone in the family for this shift and this new version of relationship that's going to exist now. And it's certainly accompanied with a lot of loss.
0: You know, you have the struggle. You want to let them go. You want to see them. You know, at what point are you, we'll come home for dinner or can we come visit you? And we're actually going to see our son this weekend in New York. And we happen to have college friends who have children in New York as well. So we make it this big, fun weekend. And last year we went in April and we had so much fun. The parents were like, oh my gosh, when can we come back? And they're like, next April. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's May and we get to come back. (laughs) You know, it's that juggling act of go be free. But, and I think it's different now. I've had a lot of conversations with people that our relationships with our kids are really different than our relationships are with our parents. And I don't know if that has to do with social media or access. You know, when I went away to college, you know, my parents called every Sunday and you talked for two or three minutes because it was so expensive to make a long distance phone call.
1: And now on the daily, you have a representation of what they're doing, where they're going and what they're eating, depending on how active they are. What's the happy balance
0: to, you know, the roots and wings to let them go
1: and again I think there's not a one way. There's not a one size fits all. It's your constructing that balance with your child around hey, I would like to talk to you seven times a day. I'm getting a sense that's probably not your desire. <laughs> but, you know, what kind of check-in does feel good? How can I show up for you in this phase of your life so that you feel loved? you know that I'm here. We feel connected, but I'm not smothering you. And so I think really an active conversation around that's pretty helpful and healthy with adult children.
0: And, but it's funny with my daughter, it's a totally different perception. I'm like, oh, Megan, you know, I haven't talked to you in a week. She's like, mom, we text every day, which we really don't. But I guess it's good in her mind that she thinks she's connected to me every day somehow. Like that touch point, she's logging. Right, right. And that's all she needs, which is fine, which is, again, you know, you know, it's when they call you for money or recipes or, you know, you're still needed, you're still thought of.
1: <laughs> and I think that is an important piece of our identity as mothers, especially, is that we are needed. And if we do a good job, we promote ourselves to not really being needed. And that's a really painful part of the motherhood experience. And maybe that's part of this phase of second life where we're the second half of life, rather, where we're thinking about what is our legacy? What is our way of being needed in this phase of life? That's maybe not by our children, but by, you know, other children, by an organization, by things that we're investing in that are part of our legacy. And we get to be free from being needed by these humans.
0: And I love that you brought that up because as I've started, this is still relatively new, but I'm finding a theme with the women that I'm interviewing. And it really is this sense of purpose in this next chapter and doing things with intention. It's not just, you know, you're young. Oh, I've got to pay the rent. I've got to get married. I've got to have a baby. You know, what does society expect? Now it's like, okay, I've checked these boxes and I have a whole heck of a lot of confidence. And you know, mo- the quote I saw in Forbes is that this generation is the healthiest, the wealthiest, and the most fit in history. So you know, we might have a little money, we might be able to have some fun things, and it's like now I'm going to do really what I want to do. What like I love your word aliveness. That's fantastic. Of just starting that next chapter, doing what we want to do and what's what can what really makes us happy.
1: And recognizing that it may not be what made you happy in the earlier phases of your life, right? That this phase of 50, of 60, there are new developmental challenges, there are new invitations, and your passions and interests can take a total U-turn, can be super different than what you felt drawn to at 20 and 30. And I think giving the space to intentionally choose what is meaningful, where do I want to give my time and energy, are really important developmental milestones. You know, we think about developmental milestones in kids, right? Is crawling, is running, can spell, can do advanced math, and we sort of check the boxes. But that doesn't stop as we go into adulthood. It doesn't stop as we age. There are still things that mark healthy adulthood Eric Erickson is a well-known psychologist, sort of contemporary of Freud, who talked about adult development all the way through to the end of life. And I think that's a helpful reminder, like we're not done cooking until, until we're done. The Surgeon General just came out with
0: a study that said half of all Americans have experienced loneliness at some point in their life. And gosh, that made me really sad to think about. But then I think about getting older and losing friends and family, and I see how it, it's possible, but it's sad. Like, what can we do to change that?
1: You know, as much as it's really helpful to have the Instagram and the text message for that connectivity with our kids and with others who live far away, I think we have to be really careful about having most of our relationship connections through a digital means. And so the ability to still be active, whether that's some kind of club, whether you're taking a pickleball or a bridge or being at a sewing circle, but something that gets you out of the four walls of your home and into the community, bumping up shoulders with someone else in a way that's recreational, connecting, meaningful, contributing. I think loneliness is really easy to come by these days because it's really quite easy to stay in a very small space and you can live your whole life. Really, we sort of learned this during COVID. We needed to, and I'm grateful we could, but like you can live your whole life without going to the grocery store. You live your whole life without going to work. Like everything can be done with your thumbs in a way that I think has real damaging consequences as the Surgeon General is talking about in the report. Yeah, it really is. I didn't even think about that, but you're right. I don't ever have to leave my house. Yeah, I don't have to wear
0: shoes. (laughs) Right. I can have groceries delivered. I can have clothes delivered. I can have anything. Um, So again, I guess being really intentional with connecting with people, and then and i'm finding now at this age group there are many women who are being forced out of corporate you know they're aging out and that's a loss too you know and they're not ready i have a friend's colleague who's 51 and she just you know got her papers and then you go through well what do i do who's going to hire a 55 year old a 60 year old i feel like i'm 30 But that's another thing we really need to embrace and figure out how to deal with that loss per se and how to get past that.
1: And I love that you're hosting a podcast, not only because I'm sure the content is going to be a tremendous gift to the people who hear it, but because how great is it for you to make something that you can offer to the community? I mean, I feel that as a writer. So I think... it's like a bigger problem to discuss the sort of dynamics of corporate that do force women out at a certain age. But I also really believe in entrepreneurship. I believe in creativity. I believe that all of us have an inner artist of some sort, whether it's a book or a podcast, and that there is tremendous need for wise women running around the world. And we have the invitation to find the places where we can be most most useful and also create the things that we wanna see out there in the world around us. So I, I'm a bit of an optimist about that and I also really love the entrepreneurial hustle. So it's never done. Again, interviewing so many women who are doing these next chapters,
0: And I had an interview with, again, someone starting a podcast where I've been in the digital space for a long time. So I kind of knew where to look for a microphone, which isn't working at the moment, but, you know, where to get the technology. And She was saying she was so excited to launch her podcast, but she had to learn. How do you do a microphone? What platforms, you know, how does this digital world work? But it is, there's so much opportunity for us. We really can do anything. And I think having a confidence post-50, to take a stab at it. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money. You know, you can create an online platform really for nothing and and see what happens.
1: And I think the, the real need for that matriarchal, mature, feminine presence, you know, I'm a little bit young, tiny bit younger than your demographic. I'm 45 this year, so not much behind you. But, you know, my mom lives far away and rarely in the presence of women who are 75 or 80. But what a gift that would be to me in my life to really sit with folk who have gone through some of these developmental milestones that I'm in the middle of, who've been in long marriages, who've done these hard things. And I really feel like there's a society that's willing to relegate us to silence because we're not the 25-year-old sort of hot sexual object that society so celebrates, but what a powerful and important way and place to fight back and say, oh my gosh, we have so much to offer, especially to the women generations that are coming behind us.
0: I love that you brought that up because I speak at college. I went to Virginia Tech and I teach classes there. And and I see, especially the young women, when they hear my story And like you said, and I've been married 27 years and they'll pull me aside like, oh my gosh, you know, what was that like? I'm like, well, it's not easy. Let me tell you that, (laughs) you know, and I tell them what, you know, what it's really like. And one of my daughter's friends, she said, I know I'm not the demographic, but I want to listen to every one of your podcasts. And I didn't think about that until I started recording. And now you're just reiterating that I think we have a lot to offer these younger women that. Look what we've done. Look what we've accomplished. It's like when I speak at the colleges that piece of paper is good, you know, from May till your first job. And after that, it doesn't matter. You can do anything you want to do. I was a political science and German major. And I'm doing PR and lifestyle on TV and now I'm hosting a podcast
1: in German, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. I did go back to Germany. My uncle did say my German was very good, considering I haven't really used it in 30 years. But you're right. I think we do have a lot to offer these young women. And maybe that's something new. We'll start a generational clatch, coffee clatch, that's all different women coming
1: together. Because this is, it's really just the last hundred years that we've lived in these single family homes where you weren't living alongside your grandma and your aunties and your grandma's sisters. And you didn't have... I mean, historically, women have had lots of women of lots of generations around to give advice and practical help with childbirth, child rearing, conversations about menopause, you know, all of the things that are part of a woman's life cycle now women are trying to figure it out on their own Googling things on the internet. Like I'm hot a lot. Am I in menopause? But what a gift to sit with generations above and below you and trade wisdom and stories. And anyway, I think that's a real need for lots and lots of folks. Yeah. Sherry, you, that's just, you're just always so calming. Like I love to talk to you.
0: You're just... Tell people, you know, what you do, because you do have a profession where you help people in this vein.
1: Yeah, so I am a clinical psychologist who supports the mental health of entrepreneurs. I do that in a lot of different ways through books, through a podcast called Zen Founder and through working one-on-one with entrepreneurs and with people in their companies. And then I have a side hustle as a circus artist. So if you are on Instagram and you want to see a psychologist spin around in the sky, that's I'm your person. I can do that. It brings me a lot of joy. What's your Instagram handle? It's at Sherry Walling. Okay, that's uh, fantastic.
0: And a lot of people listening and watching are going to start an entrepreneurial journey. And having been an entrepreneur my whole life, it's hard. So it's nice to know that there is somebody like you specific to that, because there are, you want to talk about loneliness. You try being an entrepreneur. I it, I had a retail store for 10 years that I had with my best friend. And it was, you know, the girls coming in every day and shopping, and we knew everyone in the community and everybody knew us. And it was time to spend more time with my kids. But I didn't realize that that was my social outlet too. And then to be home, which most entrepreneurs are working from home alone, it's important work that you're doing to keep that you know, creativity sparks and keep that excitement going and help people through the hard parts of it.
1: Yes. So much of it, of course, is in your head. What we decide to try and how we handle setbacks and things like that are core to the entrepreneurial journey and all about our psychology. So it's my deep delight to help people through those kinds of challenges. Yeah. And imposter syndrome is a, Big problem, especially for
0: women. I remember launching this. I actually had a coach who helped me kind of really hone in on the niche and who the audience was and what I wanted to talk about. And I would go into my sessions with her. I'm like, well, why doesn't Reese Witherspoon do this? What about Jennifer Aniston? They're all my age. And she said, Christina, they're big, huge celebrities. They're, you know, people want to hear from you. You have real world experience, you have friends that you know, lived a normal life. We joked about it. You know, I didn't have a night nanny. I didn't even know what that was till I listened to a podcast with a celebrity. I'm like, how do I get one of those? (laughs) Wait, you'll change the diapers at night? That's not called a husband? (laughs) Apparently, when you're very wealthy, no. (laughs) But so imposter syndrome is another thing that, that, you know, people listening and watching, it's normal for an entrepreneur to face that and to have a resource like, Sherry out there who can, you know, help us through that is really important.
1: Help you fight back.
0: (laughs) Yes, I've got this. So at the end of all of my interviews, I asked the same two questions. The one I can't ask you because it's what's the greatest thing you've accomplished since you were 50. But let's say what's the greatest thing you've accomplished since you were 40.
1: I feel like I'm supposed to say something about my kids, but this book is really like an act of love. It's a love story from me to my dad and my brother. And for me, I'm going to start great, but for me to like all of the grieving hearts out there. So it feels really satisfying to have found the courage to write it, found the courage to sell it, which of course is like the secretly terrible part of being an author, but I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. So. And like I say, I gift it because I don't know what to say. Now you've definitely
0: given some advice on that, but Touching Two Worlds is the book and I'm sure it's available
1: Everywhere books are found, right? Your local bookstore, Amazon, all the places, yeah. And then where do you see yourself in 10 years? Okay, so in 10 years, I will have launched, both kiddos will be out in into the world. And all I can think about right now is I, with each kid that leaves, I'm getting a new dog. So I will have oh. three dogs <laughs> and I will hopefully have a place near the beach as my second home. It's shallow, but that's what I'm after. No. Dogs and beach, <laughs>
0: You know, every person, almost every person has said, can I say beach? <laughs> and they do. So you are not alone in this. We definitely have a theme, ladies. And you'll be listening to this podcast regularly. <laughs> She'll be in the demographic. Thank you so much for sharing all your amazing wisdom with us. It's so great to have you on. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here in this conversation. Thank you for listening or for watching this episode
0: of Living Ageless and Bold. If you haven't already, please make sure you hit subscribe. And if you like the episode, I hope that you will give us a great review. You can also head over to livingagelessandbold.com and sign up for information, inspiration, and exclusive opportunities for us, women over 55. Thanks for listening. And remember no matter what you do, keep living, ageless, and bold.